In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Every year for us, this service is the same. We have a three-year lectionary, but the readings for this service never change. And at All Souls, we have opted to do just the first half of the service that the lectionary presents us. I'll say more about that later. I often then find that it is my privilege and my challenge to come up here and say something year after year about a text which I may have already said more than I knew about the year before. Now, if there's one thing that stays in common every year, it's my understanding that the theme of Palm Sunday and the theme of these texts is the theme of irony. Now, irony and worship really don't mix. They're like oil and water. Worship is saying what you believe to the best of your ability, proclaiming it in exactly the words that will most unambiguously express that proclamation. It's very important. You're saying this to God as well as to your community. Irony, of course, achieves its power when to say the thing that you most very intensely want to say, you choose exactly the opposite words of what you are actually trying to communicate. Saying what you mean to say by saying the exact opposite of what you meant, confident that your meaning will be intended, understood, not just because you use the opposite words, but uh, not just in spite of it, but because of them. Social intercourse, especially with sophisticated speakers and hearers, depends upon using language in nuanced ways. And irony can contribute to understanding by adding a scattering of leaven to what might otherwise be a very unbearably heavy blob of dough. It can bring a trace of welcome humor, leaving an accretion of tension in something that is not only urgent but important and very weighty because of it. Likewise, irony can be adopted as the lens by which we view something that has happened or is in process of happening, a state of affairs or an event that seems to be going deliberately contrary to what we expected and what we hoped, and we can find something amusing as a result if circumstances allow. Again, the hope is to find humor in something painful something that has underscored what we all know, the fragility, frailty, and fallibility of human beings who do not know what they are doing and very much act all the time as if they did. Finally, tragic or dramatic irony dispenses with the humor, as you can guess. It invests the full significance of a character's words or actions in the audience through the exposition by sharing them in advance, but at the same time keeping that same insight from the characters themselves as they thrash things out in complete unawareness. Things are seldom what they seem, in other words, and today Palm Sunday is a day drenched in irony. Especially as we do it here, we dispense with the reading of the Passion narrative, which is the substance of today, because we read that on Good Friday. If we were in a secular country 
like Canada, where Good Friday is a legal holiday, we would have three or four hours in the middle of the day to gather the community and have one of those real expositions in real time as we mark Jesus' progress to the cross on it and then to his deposition. We don't have that luxury here. We do the Passion Narrative on Friday night with a walking of the stations at noon. But we reserve that for the time in which it comes. For today, it's about the procession, and the procession is enough. And the texts we have heard are all the texts we are given, and they are only a pretext for us. Of the subtext, the text beneath the texts, the words beneath the words, the meaning which underlies and undercuts, subverts the, the surface meaning. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the apostle says, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, every knee, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I defy us to find any irony in this. The text says what it means, and it means what it says. And it means for all of us to say it too, just like that. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves. Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Lord, Adonai, Kurios. A lot of titles, a lot of job descriptions, a lot of work tracing them through history. And if you want to get N.T. Wright's nice big blue volume, it'll trace all of those things beautifully down to their sources in back. The work, however, that the Judeans of Jesus' time wanted done by somebody was simple. Two parts to the project. Get rid of the Romans and bring back Yahweh, the God of Israel, to take his place once again in the temple so that the Judeans might have no longer to be required to worship the emperor, Caesar, Tiberius, or Augustus, or whoever it was, because all of them claimed to be the son of God, and they had that stamped on the coinage which they released in the realm. And theirs was a realm that stretched further than any other realm, any other empire the world had ever seen, dwarfing the puny insignificance of Israel and his little toy temple on a hill. If you've ever seen what's left of the Forum Romanum in Rome, you can appreciate that one core of Roman imperial engineers could have put that, put that thing together in about two years. The Judeans, of course, had seen better days, but they'd also had almost a millennium to get over those days, and they had not. Instead of being permitted to languish, to settle back into insignificance, genteel decline, and enjoy life like other former empires, we Anglicans are very, very blessed because our heritage is of a former empire, the British Empire, upon which the sun never set. But there's no better time to be part of an empire than when it is in decline and church and state can begin to separate as they should and each do their work in a kind of humility. I don't know why I would say that right now. Like other formal, former empires, they, the Judeans had to endure domination by one after another of the greatest empires the Western world produced. 
God had intended them to rule the world. Or rather, God intended to rule the world from his temple by way of them, extending his just reign and his justice, his way of life, to the whole world. That never happened. And the most recent attempt by the Judeans to take back the temple with Judas Maccabeus and the kingdom by force had ended in defeat. And thousands, literally, of defeated soldiers, uprisers, revolutionaries, were crucified. And those about 2,000 to 3,000 were crucified. They had to go far afield to find enough timber to do it. And they put them all lining the main roads into town to say, this is how the peace of Rome is achieved. The Romans had a sense of irony. If you look at Lucilius, Horace, Juvenal, Lucian, but they reserved that for their moments of leisure. When they were on the job, the Romans were very, very deadpan about power. They wanted to know how to use it, how to keep it, and to keep it, they had to use it. So Jesus riding into town on those same highways on the way from Bethany was either the one for whom those who watched him were waiting or the one for whom they had all been waiting all along, just another. And we would see whether Jesus was the one or just another one. Time would tell. As they salute him, giving him an entrance worthy of a king, waving the branches of anything living that they have cut down, this is a grassroots movement, I may say. We import these palm branches at great cost, they just cut off anything that was at hand, hay, straw, tree branches, and they waved them in the air. These same people who call him Christ and Lord then are the ones will, who will send him to the cross. The sign that the Romans will fix to the cross will say, Jesus Nazarenus, Rex Iodiorum, Jesus of Nazareth, a man like other men, got a little bit out of control, king of the Judeans, and that job was already not, was already taken by Herod, and the irony of that was not lost on him, too bad for Jesus. But the irony of ironies, which is here that what they meant sarcastically, will turn out to be right after all. Jesus is the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the world's true God. There's a double irony. So their irony was wrong as irony and right as truth. Jesus gets into trouble, however, because at the time people go from believing that he is what he says he is, that he is what he appears to be, to believing that he's not. He gets crucified. And real victors, conquering heroes like Maccabeus with their invincible armies, men of action, men of might of power, men who do not lose, men who never have to say they're sorry because they're never wrong, they go down to defeat or they win. But they do it with power, with blood. It's not quite the way it works with Jesus. Well, it is too. Of course, that's the way it works for them, and winners take all in their game. But what Jesus comes to show the world, and what his followers will find out eventually for themselves, is that it's not that way at all. 
These disciples then and their descendants of this ragbag group of 12, as century follows century, will see blood flowing as they follow their leader into glory. And as the church grows, they will see again and again without exception that the blood the Christians shed will be their own. They win by losing, by choosing a hopeless cause and sticking with it, like those thousands of young people are doing as they did yesterday, as so many of our community was there to support them with my prayers and blessing. They've chosen a hopeless cause, an impossible task, and they've clung to it with utter single-mindedness in the hope that it will come to pass. They have faith, and they are not entertaining the notion of defeat. Wherever you stand on what they're trying to do, you have to give them this. They've seen firsthand, up front, close up, what military weapons can do in the wrong hands, and the wrong hands are, are, are any hands that are not wearing a uniform. And they're not taking it, and they're not fighting back with the weapons that their opponents choose either. The battle would be over then, and they would have lost with every armed school teacher. We will have all lost. And that is what precisely their opponents want, to drag them down to their level, whether by intimidation or by innuendo, by robbing their movement of any credibility. Well, we will see. But if they look this way at a church that has offered up pious platitudes, thoughts and prayers, and simply look the other way, they might look in vain for Jesus, one who in the end triumphed even over irony. For a time, no, for eternity. There is no room for cynicism, world weariness, or slavish worship of power in Jesus' project. The church might take that into consideration as we go about blessing all kinds of things. Because Jesus gave his own life so that he could be struck down by those who lived for the love of power in order to show them the power of love. Those who ushered him in had hopes, as many today, for a bloody, decisive, and military victory. But Jesus says that if the power of love is to triumph over the love of power, how is one to get there? Not by pragmatic, easy steps. It's not easy. In fact, it's impossible to do this in human strength, which means it has the sign of God written all over it. But only those with the fairest vision and the brightest hopes can be trusted to show us how to get there. And so with them, I close with this song of the prophet Zechariah. The prophets had a way of coming to a bad end at the hands of those they were trying to save. We pray for something better. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he humble. Humble.
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, not on a charger or a war horse, on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. I will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. For how great is his goodness. And how great is his beauty. Amen.